Welcome back to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelic science and psychotherapy, episode 13. Today, Brian and I will dig into one of our favorite topics, the stigma that sometimes is held against users of psychedelic medicines and advocates for psychedelic medicine. We'll discuss and break down a paper that Brian co-wrote about stigma and bias amongst psychologists and find out what many people in the profession are thinking about psychedelics and their effects, as well as talk about our own experiences of stigma in the environments that we've been a part of over time. Brian and I have been having a great time doing this show, and if you've been enjoying it as well, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Additionally, you can share this on your social media feeds or email it to friends. We believe that information is power, and we'd love to see this knowledge pass far and wide. And now, thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. All right, so, Brian... Today we're going to talk about um, today we're going to talk about stigma in particular. We're going to talk about a paper that you were a part of writing um, called "Attitudes and Beliefs About the Therapeutic Use of Psychedelic Drugs Among Psychologists in the United States." We want to kind of get a sense of what people in the profession of psychology are thinking about psychedelic drugs. Um, so we'll explore the paper a little bit. You know, we'll all kind of give you a chance to talk about you know what's in it and some of the conclusions. And then we'll broaden the conversation to talk just more about stigma generally within the profession of psychology, but maybe even more broadly. And, and we'll talk about perhaps um, examples of stigma that we've encountered, that our clients have encountered, um, and how that affects the world of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy today. Sound like a plan? Yeah, that sounds great. This is a topic I'm really passionate about and uh, something that I think needs needs to be addressed more directly the the issue of stigma that exists when we talk about psychedelics or drugs in general so since this is a paper that you um are an author on and worked on preparing why don't you set it up for us and tell us a little bit about what this uh you know what this paper seeks to do so this was a survey study of psychologists Uh, It was based on some prior research that looked at attitudes around psychedelic and psychedelic-assisted therapy amongst um, psychiatrists. So we wanted to uh, apply kind of a similar methodology to uh, a mental health care profession, like, you know, a therapy profession. And so we asked a bunch of different kinds of questions, um, but the the kind of core of it was we presented two vignettes to uh, the participants. And so this 
was a survey study of psychologists uh, and basically assessed their attitudes around psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy, uh, both directly and indirectly. So there were some questions that asked them uh, explicitly, how do you feel about psychedelics? How concerned about you are you about the risks, etc.? But we asked, we assessed um, attitudes around psychedelics indirectly by presenting a vignette to the participants. And the vignette included a situation where they met a client who um, came to them after having a, a mystical kind of experience. They, in the vignette, it's, it said something like the client describes having a sense of transcendence and connectedness, a sense of clarity about their lives and so on, kind of typical mystical experience uh, descriptions. And in one condition, that uh, client um, said that they had a meditation retreat that weekend. And then in another condition, the client said that they had used psilocybin mushrooms that weekend. So the only thing that was different was whether or not it was meditation retreat or, or mushrooms. And then there was uh, some people got a different vignette where a client came to them and said they were planning to uh, they were planning to have an experience where they were looking for you know some set of answers, um, and in one condition they were thinking about attending a meditation retreat, and the other condition they were thinking about using psilocybin mushrooms. And so you know differences between the two conditions, uh, whether it was meditation retreat or mushrooms, we could say, you know, the only thing that was different was that part. So um, the results would indicate any potential bias that was activated by those terms. So essentially, you know, you're, you're describing a similar trans, the, the, the person in the vignette is describing a similar transformative experience. And the only difference that the professional is going to hear is whether that was caused by or um, evoked by a meditation retreat or by a experience with psilocybin. Yeah, that's correct. And so, in in the in the, uh, the for the participants who got the vignette around um, a client saying they've already had an experience, um, three quarters of the survey respondents said they were they would be likely to or definitely warn clients about risks associated with psilocybin compared to uh, 25, about 25% um, who would warn about the risks of a, med- a spiritual or religious activity. And about five to eight times as many participants indicated that um, they would be very or extremely concerned about the client's safety when they mentioned uh, and, and the risk of de- developing psychosis um, when they mentioned their use of psilocybin as opposed to uh, their uh, participation in a meditation retreat. And well, that, that, was s- in, that was in particular kind of interesting to me because um, what do we know about the risk of developing psychosis from uh, psilocybin or other psychedelics versus a meditation retreat? That's a great question. And we, uh, you know, there, we, we cite some research in our discussion um, that suggests by some estimates they're equal, that the the risk of having a uh, psychiatric adverse event in the context of medication meditation 
is about equivalent to the rates associated with the natural use of psychedelics, which is somewhere between eight and eleven percent. So right there is a is a sort of just a a very clear and striking example of stigma, as in you know negative uh, belief about um, psychedelics that is unfounded um, by you know there's no evidence for it. It's 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 specious. Exactly. And most of us don't think of meditation or meditation retreats as dangerous or risky. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't have that kind of um, image of it. Uh, but there are many in the mindfulness community who, uh, you know, talk about and warn that there is some risk associated, especially with more like long-term meditation when you're doing longer sittings or, you know, weekend or even longer than a weekend retreat. So this is, you know, specifically about the risks and dangers, which, you know, I kind of just um, anecdotally, um, from my own experience, I've talked with, um, I've always been very open uh, about my, you know, for 20 years, I've been very open about my interests in psychedelics. And, and I talk, I've always talked about them in professional settings, um, whether or not that's been a good idea, I just have. Um, so I have a lot, of, I've encountered a lot of professional attitudes towards it. And this really, I mean, this fits my experience, which is even, even ones who are not closed off to the idea are very like they're, they're, they're frightened or skittish about it. Like, well, Oh, that seems really, you know, and like, there's this feeling that they feel compelled to like talk about the risks and dangers. Like, like that's when it comes up, that's what they need to talk about. They need to talk about, well, there's these risks and dangers. That's the primary thing. So there's this real, uh, discomfort with with that and sort of this feeling that even like i said even amongst the open-minded ones like the people who are open to the idea right and then there's people i've talked to of course who've just been like that's terrible and people like it's dangerous and bad but most people that i've spoken with professionals have been a little more open to it but still very very sort of cautious and which caution is appropriate but very like it's dangerous and i'm really nervous about that so this these results i find to be in line with what I would expect just anecdotally. Yeah. And, and I think some of the results were encouraging in that there was evidence of, you know, cautiously favorable attitudes towards psychedelics. Um, say, a large, more, say more about that. What, do you, what does that mean? Um, that, uh, so in the vignettes, nearly all participants indicated they would be likely to, ask about the, the experience, regardless whether it was psilocybin or, or spiritual or religious activity. Um, an equal uh, amount of participants said that they would consider the experience to be psychologically beneficial or genuinely spiritual in nature, regardless of whether it was psilocybin or a meditation retreat. That's neat. I, that, I think that that's kind of cool. I, I, would, I think I would have expected there to be a difference there. So that's kind of nice. That's kind of neat to hear. So uh, some of the general questions that we asked about what are your beliefs or attitudes about psychedelic-assisted therapy, uh, about uh, 50% of our sample indicated that uh, they believe the use of psychedelics increased the risk of subsequent psychiatric problems, and 35% said it, uh, they uh, believe that psychedelics increase neurocognitive impairment. And 30% of the sample said they should remain illegal for recreational use. But 84.7% of the sample said that uh, psychedelics deserve further scientific um, inquiry. Um, and 
another 30% said they should not be illegal. So 30% said they shouldn't be illegal. Correct. 30% said they should remain illegal for recreational use. Uh, and 30% said they should not be illegal. Wow. So 50% said it would increase the risk of subsequent uh, psychiatric problems. Yep. And 35% said it would increase uh, the risk of neurocognitive impairment. So those are other examples of, of stigma, you know, that is unfounded. You know, in fact, there have been some observational studies that have indicated that psychedelic use, just in the context of a person's life, not clinical, just like people who have used psychedelics, there, there may be a protective effect from those. So that's another clear example of, of stigma. Yeah. So that one of the survey studies uh, showed that um, having a prior history of psychedelic use was um, correlated with reduced odds of mental health problems. Of course, that's a correlational study, but yes. um, it's, you know, it was shown actually two studies were done that, that had that same finding. Mm -hmm. Far from, you know, quite the opposite of increasing risk, increasing subsequent risk, which was 50% um, of, of the survey um, respondents said that they would worry about an increased risk after psychedelic use. So we've yeah. got work to do still, huh? Yeah, I mean it's you know it's hard it's hard in some ways to to really interpret what that means. You know, for example, a lot of our um, a lot of the participants said they would um, seek consultation, and mm -hmm. so you know we could look at that as a as a as a positive thing, right? Mm -hmm. That maybe they don't have a lot of knowledge with psilocybin, and so they would they would want to talk to somebody who does have more knowledge. And you know, I think. There are some risks associated with uh, the use of psychedelics. You know, we've, we've talked on this podcast about how to talk about psychedelics. You know, in some ways we can talk about them in a way that is uh, highlights the, the risk or the danger excessively or that we could talk about in, in a way that feels too uh, overzealous or too passionate Um and so, you know, how do we talk about psychedelics in a way that honors the actual risk and uh, is reflective of the data and is reflective of the evidence of what what happens when people take psychedelics? Yeah, and it, make, it makes me wonder, too, like, um, well, what's behind some of the stigma, you know, that does remain? And I think, you know, part of it could be ignorance, I guess. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, just as a simple fact of like, just not knowing, like you said, just not like this is an area that a lot of people haven't thought much about. And maybe their only exposure to it is, um, you know, uh, drug war propaganda or, you know, some of the other uh, misinformation um, that's been uh, far too prominent about psychedelics uh, in lots of uh, contexts, you know, that was still, you know, when I was an undergraduate and then I worked in, in substance abuse um, early in my career after graduating and uh, only encountered misinformation, <laughs> really only encountered misinformation. So that's likely to be a lot of people's just main exposure. So ignorance, I think, plays a, a large part. Um, and the other piece I, I really think is, is fear, you know, um, which could be rooted in that not, you know, the, the misinformation, but there's, a, there's just a lot of fear about this. Like, Ooh, this is, this is just a kind of like, a in, like a sort of an instinctive sense that this is risky taboo. 
Um, and not only like dangerous, but also like, I wonder what you think about this, but I've, I feel like I've perceived in people I've spoken to like a, a sense of almost like I'm doing something wrong as the professional. If I'm talking with people about this, like I am, I, I'm obligated to tell, to talk, to tell them how bad it is. I'm like, I'm, I'm on the hook here. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, I think it, depending on where you live, uh, so it varies by region, uh, there's, you know, more or less of this stigma that we're talking about. And, and, you know, attitudes around drug use in general can differ based on your, your geographic location. Um, but certainly I've encountered that myself where there's a sort of feeling that this is a fringe thing or this is flaky. This is pseudoscience. Um, it lacks legitimacy. Um, I had a comment uh, within the last couple of years where I was talking about MDMA, uh, the, 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 the clinical trials for PTSD, and somebody made a comment like, well, whatever works, and kind of implying like it's sort of a desperate attempt to just to get people high and hopefully that'll work without really understanding that they're the therapeutic benefit of, of MDMA. So I think... Certainly, there is a view in mainstream medicine that looks down on uh, this as perhaps another another example of a fringe, you know, not scientific um, attempt to, to 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 help mental health problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's I've I've encountered that for sure. You know. Then this is more backing up beyond. I mean, I think the profession of psychology, psychiatry sits in, you know, our broader cultural context. Um, but if we're talking about that broader cultural context, I mean, there's still like, like the assumption is that getting high is bad, right? And everything flows like getting high is bad. You shouldn't do it, you know, and then we have carve outs, right? Like there's certain carve outs we can make. You know, we can make a carve out for like, hey, if you've had a big injury, getting high from opiates is okay because you're controlling the pain. I'm getting high is not good, but the pain control is worth it. You know, we're looking at the psychedelic as medicine and it's like, well, okay, if it can help treat people, okay. But then there's other people that are deeply skeptical of it. It's like, like you said, it's, well, it's just getting people high. How can that be a good thing? Because underneath that is the assumption, like getting high is bad. Um, you know, you've seen that, you know, with uh, uh, marijuana, I think that that's, that stigma is shifting with, it's not gone, but it shifted really, really rapidly with marijuana. But it's, it's a, it's a real sort of a bias towards a standard, like ordinary state of consciousness is, that's what you're supposed to do. You're, you're not supposed to get high. Of course, alcohol is fine. <laughs> Although um, I think there's, uh, I don't think everyone thinks, you know, alcohol is fine either. But there's just that huge bias against altering one's consciousness generally. Like the idea of getting high is sort of inherently problematic, mm-hmm. and, and it sh- isn't something that you really should do um, at all. Right. I love this conversation because I think there is a. If you look at human history, there's been this fundamental desire of humans to alter their state of consciousness. And actually, we see we see it in some animals as well. That given the opportunity, um, some of the things animals do, mostly mammals, right, more advanced um, animals, uh, is is to change their consciousness, mm-hmm. and that 
you know, life is hard and f- even people who may not alter their consciousness through the use of a substance are probably trying to do it in other ways, whether it's through, uh, you know, uh, getting absorbed in Netflix or being on their phone. I mean, we could conceptualize some of the things that we do as humans as rewarding as because they kind of take us into a different state of mind or state of consciousness. And I agree, there is this sort of, you know, thing that comes up, like when I do trainings on psychedelic assisted therapy, sometimes people will say, well, isn't this just getting high? Or, you know, usually, like, if if I answered the way I really wanted to, I would say no. And if it was, what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what's wrong with wanting to seek out some relief or you know, in psychedelic experiences, there is the um, experience of uh, afterwards feeling like there was some clarity achieved or a shift in perspective that winds up feeling beneficial. Yeah, it makes me think of a book I read years ago um, by you know, Dr. Andrew Weil, who most people you know know him as the big, jolly, bearded, bald, natural, um, natural health uh, MD guru person. Uh, you know, writes a lot about diet, nutrition, alternative health, things like that. Um, but early in his career, you know, he he did research in marijuana. You know, right, uh, you know, in the late '60s, right when the hammer sort of fell with pro, uh, you know, the drug war and prohibition and all that. So um, that sort of ended that. But that was his earliest work, um, and he wrote a book called The Natural Mind about that. And 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 the central argument of the book is that the drive to alter one's consciousness is innate, you know, like you just said, and it's a sort of a book league argument of that, that I uh, really enjoyed um, and would recommend. Um, Cause I think it is, you know, we have, uh, you know, it's hard to be a person, you know, it, it is. And this comes to me every day, you know, my, you know, my day job, I'm a counselor. I see, dozens of people a week and life's hard and it's a lot to bear. And, you know, we have these brains that sort of understand inherently our predicament, which is, I mean, it's a real, it's a tough one. Us humans are in a tough one, you know, unlike zebras or donkeys or fish or whatever, who, you know, go about their lives and can certainly experience pain but they don't walk around with this knowledge of, man, I'm going to die. Everybody, I, everybody and everything I think I care about is going to die. This is temporary. How do I make sense of that? And, you know, and that's something that we as humans, we, that's our predicament is understanding the impermanence of everything. I mean, and that, that's heavy, man. <laughs> that's heavy. And, the desire to, and the, the need, I will say the need, the need to transcend that at times to, to see something else, to see some, to, to, to see it from a different angle, um, to not just be weighed down with that knowledge is tremendous, you know? And I think that that's one thing, psychedelic experiencing in particular, um, but even other forms of altering one's consciousness can ease, is to ease that that burden of, of knowledge of understanding that like this predicament we're in in life, which is amazing and beautiful and 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 so many good things, but also like this sort of mindfuck to put it bluntly, 
Yeah. And that idea that we, we, you know, we, we're all, we're all looking to make sense of it. And, um, you know, that it's okay sometimes to, to want to, um, have some distraction or escape. Uh, I'm not saying that's what psychedelics are, but just for the sake of argument, if, if someone, if that's what they're looking for, like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's something that I, maybe in our country, because of our, you know, uh, Puritanism history, or, uh, you know, we could, we could look at it from, you know, historical perspectives, like, that's not something that is kind of officially sanctioned by our, our mainstream culture. Which is, like you just pointed out, it's maddeningly hypocritical, if you ask me, because it's perfectly okay if you want to go you know, binge Netflix for four hours, which is great. Fine. I'm not against binging Netflix for four hours, but it's the same thing. You know, like there, you, you drive down the street and there's billboards advertising escapism. You can spend your money to escape so by eating or drinking something, you know, online, you can lose yourself in the met. What is it? The metaverse now is this, uh-huh. this is the thing. Facebook is rebranding as the metaverse, which seems like this is like, there are certain clear points, you know, when, in our, our current culture, I think where it's like, well, this is where the dystopia starts. Well, this is where the dystopia starts. Well, this is definitely one of those. I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is, this is where this is like the, okay. The beginning was probably a while ago, but this is a very clear marker to me. It's like, okay, we're living in the metaverse now. All right. Yeah. Like the metaverse, the matrix, whatever it's to say. <laughs> I don't know, man. It just seems like I don't trust that at all. But um, you know, all these are ways of escape. You know, like escaping this sort of predicament that we're in, in which suffering is inescapable. You know, it's 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 inescapable. And the only time we get, you know, perhaps for many, the only time they get reprieve is to find some sense of escape. But there are certain kinds that are okay and certain kinds that aren't. I'm curious, Nate, if you've had any personal experiences with stigma. You know, I was trying to think before today of my own personal experiences and I'd have to say that at least mostly recently, they haven't been overt or explicit. Um, the, the more, the, the couple of times where I felt very explicitly stigmatized was when I was much younger as a student by a mentor or somebody, you know, more of in a position of power who uh, made clear that my interest in psychedelics was um, professional suicide and that it would be disastrous if I were to publicly adopt this as my, my specialty area. Um, I think they were good intentioned perhaps, but still felt, didn't feel great to hear those things. And I think, you know, part of, part of it might be as being a white man, you know, some of the privilege that's associated with that, because I think if you're, if you are, you know, depending on your identity, it might feel uh, less safe to talk about psychedelics or talk about an interest in psychedelic assisted therapy, uh, depending on where you live, it might not be safe to talk about these interests. So I was curious if you've had any personal experience. Yeah. I think that last point bears emphasizing because I think that's super true. And it's why I think a lot of quote leaders, most visible leaders in the, in the last few years, uh, you know, psychedelics have begun to come out of the shadows, you know, have been white men. Um, I don't think it's because white men are uh, any better at it or any more talented or ha- or even because they have any more interest in it, but it's been because they're 
less likely to experience sanction from being open. Um, mm-hmm. That's the reason. And that's certainly been my experience um, because I've been very open about it um, basically since since college, since I first um, discovered mushrooms and, and tripped. I've, I've, not, I've, I've not really ever shied away from talking about it from, you know, family gatherings to class in school to um, professional settings. I've just been very open. And I haven't really experienced much in the way of consequence because of that. Um, and that's extremely fortunate and not everyone would have had that experience. Um, but I've sort of felt obligated my whole life because I could be open to be open. Um, it's, it's felt like just a, an honesty thing for me. When I've encountered stigma, which I have, I have basically like put my forehead into it and clashed. Like I've had coworkers uh, who then, you know, I bring it up, they would confront me and I would come right back. Like I, I you know, I've had arguments with supervisors. Um, like I, I, I've always just felt like I need to confront the stigma and I kind of like, this just sort of my MO would be to point out the ways in which that stigma is rooted in ignorance. Um, and I've never had, um, I don't know, like a, a significant consequence as a result of it. Um, I've never gone high to work or anything like that. It's always just been like talking about it, right? Like I've never been shy about talking about it. So, and I think that has been a, a tremendous privilege, but also, I, like I said, I've kind of considered an obligation. I'm like, I'm in these settings and I'm hearing things that I know to be bullshit. I'm not going to let it fly, even if, you know, even if it means there's a conflict. So that's been more or less, I'm really trying to think, because you asked me this question earlier, to talk about our own experiences of stigma. And I, I've been trying to rack my brain at, like, how have I felt like it's impacted me negatively? And I am not coming up with much. I mean, I think maybe it's... I mean, I really have to stretch. I, I, you know, I've heard stories and some of the stories I've heard are from clients who mm-hmm. told me about sharing a psychedelic experience with a prior therapist that didn't go well, mm-hmm. um, where they felt really judged or in even some cases they were fired by their therapist because they were interested in using psychedelics for, you know, personal growth or something like that. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know, that's something that I think is, is a reality and can, and can produce a lot of harm. I, I think for me, one of the ways stigma, I've experienced stigma is in sharing early on, sharing my own personal journeys or trips with people and feeling that people reacted in a way that wasn't, wasn't welcoming or wasn't, um, wasn't supportive. And mm-hmm. I felt silly for sharing or I felt like um, I was doing something wrong or doing something dangerous. And so I wound up like hiding it in a lot of contexts, like not sharing about my personal experiences. And I think what that led to for me over time was um, a a tendency to minimize or devalue them myself Mm -hmm. and believing Mm -hmm. that, oh, I guess these aren't important. I guess these were just a hallucination. Maybe they weren't as powerful or or whatever as I had had thought they were. So I think when we experience that external stigma, it can result in uh, us kind of participating in that judgment ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I've encountered that a great deal with people I've worked with because I make a habit of, of, I mean, like any, probably any, uh, you know, therapist, any counselor, psychologist, you know, you do a drug history, like 
you always do that with everybody just to get a sense of um, like that's an important part of many people's lives and it's a problem for many people and it's just a standard thing that you do. Uh, and I always ask about psychedelic use in particular. But you, you, people are very clearly defensive. You know, their, their first reaction is to be very defensive about it. And I think that is that stigma, either because they've had bad interactions about it before where they've felt judged, and that, that's certainly been the case. And I've talked to many people about their prior experiences of being judged for that, or they just assume they will be because they know, hey, like, I'm talking to a professional here, never mind that they're professional we're talking to has hair down to his shoulders and doesn't wear shoes, but like, whatever it's, <laughs> um, they're still like expecting in a professional setting that like, they're going to be, they're going to be judged. You know, they're going to be told that this is dangerous. They're going to be told. And so when I just ask open-ended questions about it and they have a chance to actually talk about it, you can really palpably see the sense of relief that like, wow, I can actually take this seriously and talk about this because this is something that I don't understand and need to make sense of um, and really want to talk about, but don't feel like I've ever been able to because it's been shut down. So I think that that's, that stigma op operates very much by often minimizing, minimizing people's experiences yeah. like you described. And, you know, in, in some of my experiences of that, my psychedelic experiences are some of the most profound, meaningful experiences I've I've had. They're 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 sacred to me, and you know I'm not alone in that. Of course, right? There's this is one of one of the um, ways in which people will talk about their their psychedelic experiences. So to have something that you that is so meaningful to you, mm -hmm. devalued, and you know even if it's like a slight a slight comment like it hurt it, it sort of hurts that much more because it's the same as like religion right if you we know that it's we probably shouldn't be it's okay not to agree with somebody's religion but we shouldn't be you know putting it down because that's yeah. important to them mm -hmm. uh so it's it's something that for many of us uh, many people who've been touched by psychedelics it's such a powerful experience so it's it's you know any degree of stigma is going to is going to sting that much more. Yeah, I think that you know this conversation definitely has me thinking back and you know and you described being uh dismissed or devalued um and I, I think back and like I described butting my head up against that and and I, I do remember in in undergrad, you know, because I, I, I talked about it with professors and I had an advisor who I, who I brought it up with and it was really like, you know, got the the sort of a, a very dismissive interaction not not unkind but very dismissive about it and so and so that's why i did um you know i did a big lit review on the early um so, like, like that's how i responded to that professor was i did a lit review about the psychedelic research that was done in the 50s 60s and early 70s because i was like well look i'm not crazy here <laughs> look at this this is i'm not like making this up i'm not just some like tripping hippie although i am but not just that um <laughs> You know, so it was always to kind of like instinctively to like say like no, this is this is real, and um, and and I, so I've always had this real intense need to push back when I've encountered that. Like, no, don't tell me what my experience is. Like, this is some real shit, and like I've, I've just always had confidence in that experience and felt like I use this word obligation. And it, it is, it, it really has been that sense for me. Like, I feel obligated yeah. to to push back on that. To broaden back to a more uh, broad level, stigma is, you know, going to, I think, be more relevant as psychedelic-assisted therapy disseminates more broadly. So as 
MDMA-assisted therapy, psilocybin-assisted therapy becomes FDA-approved, or certain states like Oregon begin practicing psilocybin treatment, and more and more people are will actually be able to access this type of treatment. You know, I think that's where there'll be, you know, th- these forces will play out a bit more, mm-hmm. and it'll be important to provide education. I think that's one of the things that, in my experience. There's, there's such a great need for now. And because of that, I think we all can take, we all have a role to play in that. We can all play a part in helping to educate kind of, as you mentioned, you know, situations when we encounter misinformation, we can use it as an opportunity to educate if we feel safe enough to do so, so that, you know, we are helping to dispel these old myths, um, this old drug war uh, ideas these, uh, you know, misinformation, things like, you know, MDMA rots the brain or, you know, um, LSD stays in your spine forever. I mean, these are things that are out there in the culture. Do you remember the one where, um, this is one I heard multiple times, and this is kind of just like funny stories of stigma here. I wonder if you have any of them. I remember clearly being told by multiple people a story about, and I looked into this, I tried to find it. I'm like, is this true? Is this true? It's not. But a guy is a story about somebody in the sixties who they took acid and then they, they became a glass of orange juice and they thought they were a glass of orange juice and they couldn't lay down for the rest of their lives because if they laid down, they would spill and they had to be hospitalized <laughs> and put this, like this. But I heard this story multiple times from multiple sources. So it wasn't just like some person. It was like, like, a, like somehow this is a story that started somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard the orange juice story, um, but it's not surprising <laughs> that that's, mm-hmm that's out there. I mean, the ones that come to mind are that psychedelics stay in your brain or they cause genetic damage. You know, I think that's maybe more related to LSD. Like there was the one, and this was actually a study, right? Like where they said LSD causes chromosome damage. Yeah. And the study was they put chromosomes in a Petri dish and then dumped an amazing amount of LSD all over them. And they're like, see, the chromosomes are damaged. It's like, Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> you just like <laughs> took these isolated cur- – like if you put basically any substance, which they didn't demonstrate it later, like you put caffeine, you put anything on that in that concentration, it's going to degrade a chromosome. Like that's going to happen. <laughs> so it's right. just like these out-of-context studies that then they just amazingly took on this life. Like people adopted it. Like, yeah, that's evidence for what we want to think. So LSD causes chromosome damage. Mm-hmm. You know, and despite that that's like the flimsiest, flimsiest evidence that, that turned out to be worse than flimsy, just – basically completely untrue but it fit that drug war narrative yeah so so well that it was just adopted unquestioningly yes yeah i mean i think about mdma and all of the research you know there there has been research demonstrating toxicity in animals but a lot of that research is done with doses and frequency that don't that are that are greatly larger and distorted compared to you know, using it in the way that it's used in the clinical trials and in the way that it's been used by MAPS, there's been no evidence of neurotoxicity. Uh, and, you know, and, and we don't know exactly, you know, one of the questions that comes up a lot is, you know, what's the magic number? Like, how often can I use something like MDMA without, you know, causing some sort of neurotoxicity? Uh, we don't we don't exactly know that, mm-hmm. but it seems you know seems to be in in infrequent doses um, that it's it's safe. Yeah, but that that's so counter to to that narrative. I remember another experience that uh, I was talking about with a 
fellow student in undergrad who was saying like, well, Nate, you know, I know you're really liking this and this is fun. Cause like I said, I would literally talk to anybody about this at any point all the time. And he's like, but you know, that's dangerous. And I was like, it's, it's, it's not actually. So here's, let's talk about this. Um, and I said something to him that he has for the rest of his life. He thought it was the funniest thing he ever heard. He was like, I said, you know, LSD is safer than your cheeseburger, right? Cause we were sitting at the table and he was eating a cheeseburger. I said, it's safer than your cheeseburger. And I've since thought about that a lot. And in fact, I kind of will maybe, maybe here's, a, here's an idea for a podcast episode is that we sit down and let's actually try to figure out which is safer, a cheeseburger or LSD. Because I really want to get to the bottom of this. I, I'm not sure I'd say LSD is, is safer than cheeseburger, but maybe. It might be. It might have more protective effects. Too. I don't know. I think it would be a fun question to like analyze, really figure out what's more dangerous, the LSD or the cheeseburger. Yeah, I would love to get to the bottom of that too, Nate. All right. So look for an episode from Altered States of Contact sometime. Cheeseburger versus LSD. I'll have to send that to my friend, Eric. <laughs> Be like, hey, look, we really tried to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> you know, it's so funny as we as as I'm we're, – we're having this conversation right now. I find myself wanting to say, well, but, you know, there are – we, we don't want to dismiss the, the actual risks of LSD and MDMA that they can be psychologically harmful if not used in the right set or setting. And I just have that in me, that, that sort of um, pull to want to, to be cautious and to be safe. And, yeah. um, well, to, and to, you're, to, you're not wrong, right? Like you're not wrong, but I just think it's interesting. Like, like if uh, you're talking about horseback riding, Right. Like people just talk about horseback riding and they don't as nearly as often feel the need to point out that horseback riding is dangerous as hell, Um, (laughs) you know, or a a popular, very popular sport around here, you know, is motocross. Right. And, you know, kids like small kids like learn, like ride motocross. That's dangerous as hell. And it's perfectly socially accepted. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. I'm not saying anything about it one way or the other, other than the fact that it's um, generally seen as acceptable. Most people do, t- in my experience, a lot of people do talk about the dangers of that. But, um, but I think like playing football, there's some increased conversation about the risks of playing football, but it's an extremely socially acceptable thing. You know, rock climbing, extreme sports, like you name it, our lives are filled with risks. Many of them are comparable or more than LSD use, especially LSD used in a, you know, in a proper setting with, um, uh, I don't want to say supervision. That's not necessary, but like a safe setting, put it that way. Yes. You know, it's just funny how we feel like we have to talk about the risks in an, ex- like in a very clear way with this, which I'm not saying we don't, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but I'm saying like, we have this like defensive need to yeah. point it out, point it out, point it out that we wouldn't have with other activities of comparable or even greater risk. I mean, therapy itself can, can be harmful to some clients. We don't like to talk about that. We don't often think of it that way, but therapy itself can can make some people worse. You know, how often do you hear people talking about the risks of psychotherapy? Yeah, or the risks of uh, other types of medication or the risks of medical procedures, which, you know, are are talked about in some circumstances, but really swept, and I, would know, I don't even want to say swept under the rugs, but de-emphasized, uh, you know, in a lot of settings. So, so it isn't that I, like we, like we talked about in our last episode, and it isn't, and we'll talk about more about some of the specific risks because I do think they really are important to understand. But I don't feel like they have to be emphasized in this way that I think many of us are inclined to feel reflexively like they do. 
And I think attitude, public attitude is changing pretty quickly on this around drug use in general. We're seeing more and more places in the country where uh, decriminalization efforts are successful. Uh, bills are being passed uh, or, or, you know, people are voting on approving um, mm-hmm. decrim measures. Uh, and so, you know, even maybe 10 years ago, I'm not sure if some of these decrim bills would, would make it. And to me, that's really encouraging that maybe we're feeling like, hey, this isn't, you know, every a lot of what we think about drugs is is maybe not so helpful. And this kind of, they're dangerous and this punitive uh, let's lock people up for small amounts. That that kind of attitude seems to be really changing quickly. Thankfully, it is, but it, it's 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 not gone. You know, it isn't gone. It is it is changing quickly, and it's interesting to see how that's you know filtering down. I think it is changing more quickly in some areas than others, and and of course, it changes the slowest for people who have sort of the least protection, um, and that's you know. You just can't be said enough that like, even as it's changing and that's, you know, we can sit here and talk about it and be very optimistic and hopeful about that. And that's true. And that's great. And that bears saying at the same time, you know, if you go and talk to people who are in jail, I don't think that it matters to them. <laughs> they, yeah, hey, it's getting right. better. Uh, the stigma is less. So there's still, there's still a lot of work to do on that, of course. And there's still stigma within the psychedelic community, right? There's this idea of psychedelic exceptionalism, where you've got the good drugs versus the bad drugs. And I will admit to, you know, for for me, uh, it wasn't until recently, probably within the last two years, that, um, you know, I had this view of PCP as being a very dangerous mm-hmm. drug that had no value. Like that was, for me, a bad drug. Uh, until you know, I encountered people who talked about using it in therapeutic ways and and understood it better and realized that uh, this this bad this view of it as a bad drug was more based in myth and misinformation. Not not you know, and that it was. I've been interested in psychedelics for twenty years. Like I've been um, involved, uh, and so I think we're all susceptible to it. Um, even those of us who are in you know, more experience with uh, certain drugs. I mean, if we want to talk about the boogeyman of all boogeymen, you know, even let's, we can consider the case of opiates because right now that's, um, you know, we have the opioid crisis and I'm not um, diminishing uh, the suffering, the widespread and deep suffering uh, that is happening in this country right now as a result of that. It's, it's a problem, but I think like that has caused, you know, kind of a, I think maybe a devaluing of how amazing opioids are and here, like my wife just had surgery and this would be an excruciating, excruciating, excruciating event. If not for a pain reliever that powerful, I stepped on a screw about nine months ago and I hadn't taken any sort of uh, painkiller in in years and years and years, but it hurt. Like, I mean, it hurt, hurt, hurt. And couldn't sleep and couldn't sleep. My doctor prescribed me something and I do it. It was wonderful. And I'd be lying if I said it also didn't feel amazing, but it did. And I didn't hurt and I slept and I did that for three nights and I was able to sleep for those three nights. And then I did it for a fourth night, even though it didn't hurt because I liked it. And then I closed the bottle and I haven't opened it up since, <laughs> you know, it's not like I like it worked and thank goodness for it. 
you know, opioids are uh, a gift to humanity, you know, and yet, you know, now they're demonized as the, they're not bad. There is a very large social problem in how they are consumed and the suffering that is causing people to turn to these as a way to alleviate their suffering. But it's a social problem, not, not a problem with a quote, a bad drug. Yeah. So even, even opioids, I think, you know, bear looking at through this lens of they're not bad. And there's a stigma that's damaging above and beyond whatever risks might be there. Right. Like the substance, any, any substance itself is not inherently good or bad. It's how it's used. And any substance can be misused or most substances can cause some harm, right? Depending on, you know, if you take too many aspirin, that could be bad for you. And, and most have tremendous benefits, like tremendous benefits. And that's what I was saying is opiates have tremendous benefits and risks. And and I think we, we just talk about it in this really, through, it, it's just so unuseful to talk about it through this moralistic drug war lens. It's just a terrible, terrible way to talk about drugs. And of course, one of the downsides of the war on drugs is lumping them all together, right? It sort of creates this 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 generalization then that 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 blocks people's ability to see the different profiles we lump them all together but they're actually very very different things mm-hmm. and if we don't think of them as different we're we're more likely to be uh you know to to not be accurate when when understanding them or talking about them, you know, I was a kid of the eighties and was the war on drugs and all drugs were bad. And, you know, so cannabis and heroin and uh, LSD, they were all the same. They were all going to send me to jail and I would become, you know, uh, addicted and all of that kind of stuff. Um, So, you know, that, that has a harmful effect because then I doesn't, it prevents me from, from really understanding what are the the uh, risks and benefits of each of these very different substances? You know, one there's one last uh, I guess example of stigma that I want to talk about. Um, the psychedelic specific. You know, and it's an interesting one. It's a conversation that we had, uh, you know, with a colleague of ours via email. And I think it's um, like even within. So let's say like within Buddhism, uh, there's a book that explores this particular um, topic. Zigzag Zen. It's a great book. And it explores, it's an edited volume that sort of has different points of view and explores this idea of like, is a psychedelic experience, is a mystical experience occasioned by a psychedelic experience of the same value as one that's induced by meditation? And and there are a lot of people that think, no, it isn't, um, or that it's a shortcut, you know. Or that it doesn't produce lasting changes, um, or that it's something you know when you when you hear when you um, hear hear the me- get the message, hang up the phone, that sort of thing. And so I even think within um, yeah, like, like Buddhism or spiritual communities who are sort of open. There's there's you know there's a an open question about you know whether uh, the experiences gleaned from these are useful for kind of getting your foot in the door, or whether they're useful as a ongoing sort of path uh, of, of maintenance. Um, and it's an open question and I'm not picking on anybody about that. I think it's an interesting discussion and one to be explored versus like, should they be done judiciously and minimally, you know, or, you know, are they a kind of thing that can be done over time as a maintenance practice? Yeah. And I think that's part of what we, we, we 
don't have a clear sense of yet. Frequency and time spent apart. You know, we've got the model from our clinical trials, but that is a common question. How, you know, is this something I should be using long-term or how often should I trip? And, you know, I think people who are using psychedelics uh, on their own uh, have, you know, different found different ways that work best for them. So there's probably uh, different approaches that'll work uh, for, for each of us. All right. Well, you know, on that note, I think we have, um, you know, pretty thoroughly explored uh, the topic of stigma and kind of speculated a bit and also talked about, you know, the results of your study where you actually were able to talk to clinicians and see what sort of the temperature of stigma is um, amongst some of the people that you interviewed. Do you have anything that you'd like to add to our, our, our discussion as we wrap up? Just that I think, uh, you know, attitudes are hopefully changing for the better. And uh, I would encourage our listeners to, to participate in that to the degree that it feels right for you by just taking opportunities to educate uh, people that you encounter. Uh, if you see an opportunity to talk about the benefits of psychedelics or the, the research, those kinds of conversations can go a long way. It gets easier the more you do it. That's for sure, right? Like the more, the, I feel like you get that little the little star with a rainbow that like the more you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's like turning that on its head. I love it. All right. <laughs> the more you know, and the more often that you are, uh, you know, talk about this with people, um, the easier it gets and the more comfortable you feel doing it. Yeah. All right. Till next time, the more you know, I feel like that. I want to make that our tagline now. Alter states of context. The more you know. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> See you.